Jesus is the risen ruler and the righteous judge of the world. And that's what we do. We follow him. We follow him because he is the king. Welcome to A Better Word with Dr. Nick Gatsky, Senior Pastor of Old North Church in Canfield, Ohio. I'm your host, Brian Dolan. Today, we move to part two of a message from Pastor Nick called Christ the Risen Ruler and Judge. In the midst of our series, Two Ways to Live, all about the six essential aspects of the gospel. Now, you mentioned to me off-air here recently, you kind of quizzed your church on what are the essential parts of the gospel. Yeah. Curiously, one part was left out for many of people. Yeah, one part that was left out very often was resurrection. Really? Yeah. Does that surprise you? A little bit, but you know what? Most of us would probably summarize the gospel in shorthand as Jesus died for our sins. True. You said that before. I'm sure I've said that before. Yeah. What's the gospel? Well, the gospel is Jesus dying for our sins. But when we only communicate the gospel in that way, leaving out the resurrection, two things happen. Number one, we are inconsistent with the message of the apostles throughout all of Acts in the New Testament. More than anything else, they proclaimed not death, but resurrection. And number two, we lose all of the implications of that resurrection. And that's what we talk about in the message today. Well, listen carefully as we get right to that with Pastor Nick Gadsky. Here's part two of Christ, the risen ruler and judge. Jesus's resurrection and being the first fruits of the perfect body also means that you will receive a perfect resurrection body as well. That might not have so great an impact on you. But the older you get, the more the idea of a resurrection body becomes a longing for you. This means that the constant pain in my shoulder will be gone. This means for those of you who are suffering with chronic illness or chronic pain, and there are many to varying degrees, it means that you will finally feel the way that you're supposed to. This means for those of you who have been battling disease, that you will never have to battle disease again. And the list goes on. You will have a perfect resurrection body. In 1 Corinthians 15, 52, Paul says, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. Because Jesus rose, we will too. The second implication is that Jesus rose as the judge. When the apostles preached about the resurrection of Jesus, they connected it to our resurrection of the dead. And throughout the Bible, our resurrection of the dead is connected to the last day or judgment day. People aren't raised from the dead to immediately go to their eternal destiny in heaven or in hell. The resurrection of the dead is directly connected to the day of judgment. People rise from the dead to stand before a judge who then will determine their eternal destiny. 
This was the message of Paul in Acts chapter 17 to a bunch of people who didn't know really anything about God in Athens. This is what he said in verse 30. He said, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some have mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So there's a connection in Paul's mind as he preaches the good news of Jesus. There's a connection between the resurrection of the dead for all people and the day of judgment and the resurrection of Jesus and what kind of assurances that gives for that day. And he gives at least three assurances just right here by way of observation. The resurrection of Jesus gives us an assurance that judgment will happen. (laughs) Jesus rose from the dead. We will too. We rise to a day of judgment. Secondly, the resurrection of Jesus gives an assurance that God has appointed Jesus to be the judge. That's why he says, a man whom he has appointed will be the judge of the world. That's Jesus. And thirdly, the resurrection gives us an assurance that Jesus is righteous. He's judging in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And if Jesus is righteous, the implication is that his judgments will be righteous. Jesus rose as the righteous judge. He himself teaches this about his role. All the way back in John chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, he says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And likewise, in verse 25 of chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and all those who hear will live. And for the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So resurrection from the dead leads to a moment of judgment, which then goes to life or eternal judgment. Jesus has the authority to be that judge, and that is a sobering reality. And depending upon where you stand, that might be a cause for great fear. Or it might be a cause for some really good news. And here is the good news. The good news that we talked about last week and the week before, and if you haven't had a chance, if you missed those, you haven't had a chance to listen to them, 
I want to encourage you to go back because all of these messages are functioning in conjunction with each other in this series. The good news is that we talked about is that justice will be served. And that's good. God in his holiness, his purity, his perfection, God in his righteousness, which is the expression of that holiness to the beings around him. Those characteristics are inextricably linked from each other, as is God's justice. His upholding all things in their right place. This justice will be satisfied completely. And friends, you want justice to be served. You do. You want things to be in their right place. You do not want the wicked to win. We all want true, godly, perfect justice. And it's good news here because in Jesus, as we talked about last week, for those who put their faith in him, not only will justice be served, but justice has already been served. Jesus' work on the cross when he came to die for us removes guilt from us and satisfies the penalty of God's wrath against us for everybody who puts their faith in him. This is not applied or accomplished for those that do not put their faith in him. It is reserved, as he says, for those who trust him, who follow him, who put their faith in him. He is the judge who seeks justice but he is also the judge who satisfies that justice. So the risen Christ Jesus forgives. He offers new life under his reign as God's new king. Justice has been served. Romans 4.25 tells us this, that Jesus's resurrection is for the sake of justice. It says, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. The judge is also the justifier for those who believe. Malcolm Muggeridge, as he was nearing the end of his life, wrote about how he processed this claim of the resurrection and justice and new life and what it meant for him as he approached death in this life. And he does so in poetic fashion. He writes this. He says, plenty of great teachers, mystics, martyrs, and saints have spoken words full of grace and truth. In the case of Jesus alone, however, the belief has persisted that when he came into the world, God designed to take on the likeness of a man. For myself... As I approach my end, I find Jesus' outrageous claim ever more captivating and meaningful. Quite often waking up in the night, as the old do, I feel myself to be half out of my body, hovering between life and death, with eternity rising in the distance. I see my ancient carcass prone between the sheets stained and worn out like a scrap of paper dropped in the gutter. And hovering over it, myself, like a butterfly, released from its chrysalis stage and ready to fly away. Are caterpillars told of their impending resurrection? How in dying they will be transformed from poor earth crawlers 
into creatures of the air with exquisitely colorful painted wings? If told, do they believe it? I imagine the wise old caterpillars shaking their heads. No, it can't be. It's a fantasy. Yet, in the limbo between living and dying, as the night clocks tick remorselessly on, I hear those words. I am the resurrection and the life. And I feel myself being carried along on a great tide of joy and peace. That is why Peter writes, Blessed be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? We're born to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The third implication of the resurrection is that Jesus rose as God's appointed ruler. Again, back in Acts, Peter describes this to those who witnessed the day of Pentecost. And he says this in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and we, that we are all witnesses. Therefore being exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David, King David, that is, did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. So two observations. For God to make Jesus both Lord and Christ means that he is both the ruler and the savior. The one who is the Lord is the king. The one who is the Lord is the king. And so in this way, you see the kingship of God the Father that we talked about now a number of weeks ago being applied and shared with his son. Jesus is the king. Secondly, you see that not only is he the king, but he is the victorious king. Quoting Psalm 10, Jesus' enemies will be his footstool. They will be conquered. They will be brought to the lowest place. The king will reign. And Jesus is that king. So, you're starting to see how this story of God in the world is fitting together. A story is more than a story of forgiveness, though forgiveness is certainly right in the middle of it. But this forgiveness is related to judgment and judgment is related to rebellion and rebellion is related to a king who has a throne and who rules and reigns over the earth. And so here's the logic. Here's the story in very simple parts that God is the loving creator and ruler of the world. He's the king. 
that our biggest problem is our rebellion against the king as we want to have life and do life our own way. That rebellion against the king, who's perfect and holy and just, deserves death and judgment. But Jesus died for us, removing guilt, satisfying wrath and judgment for all those who believe. And when he rose from the dead, God made him both judge and ruler. Jesus is now the king. And he gives new life, the new ability for all of those who follow him and believe in him to live under the reign of the king, to experience the kingdom in a way that they had not before experienced it. God's chosen ruler, King Jesus, is the one that we follow. And we're going to talk more about that in coming weeks. What does it mean to follow him more specifically? We'll get there. But pause with me and just think about the nature of this unique king and kingdom. Because most kingdoms do anything that they can to protect the king. That's the whole premise of the game of chess, right? King falls, the kingdom falls. Illustrations throughout history of protecting the king. One such illustration happened in World War II during the Allied invasion of Normandy on D-Day, June 6, 1944. The British Prime Minister Winston Churchill was adamant that he wanted to join the expeditionary force and watch the invasion from the deck of a battleship in the English Channel. The United States General Dwight Eisenhower was desperate to stop him for fear that the Prime Minister would be killed. And when it became apparent that Churchill would not be convinced to stay behind, Eisenhower appealed to a higher authority. He appealed to King George VI. And so the king went to the prime minister and told Churchill that if it was indeed the prime minister's duty to witness the invasion, he could only conclude that it was his duty as the king to do the same. And at this point, Churchill reluctantly agreed to back down because he knew that he could never put the king in that kind of danger. But King Jesus did exactly the opposite. (laughs) Rather than sitting back in the protection of his throne room, with royal courage, he surrendered his body to be crucified. On the cross, he offered the king's ransom, his life for the life of his people. He would die for all of the wrong things that we'd ever done and ever would do, completely atoning for all of those sins and changing the result of the past, the present, and the future. The crown of thorns that was placed on his head meant to mock his claims of kingly dignity actually became the greatest sign of his kingly dignity, even in his death. And that kingly dignity was then confirmed in resurrection. (laughs) And it makes him worthy to follow. Jesus is the risen ruler and the righteous judge of the world. And that's what we do. We follow him. We follow him 
because we want forgiveness. We follow him because we want a new life. We follow him because we want unending joy that he promises. We follow him because we want to be saved from judgment. We follow him because we know that what we see and what we feel is not all that there is. We follow him because he is the king. Nearly 200 years ago, there were two Scottish brothers named John and David Livingstone. John had set his mind on making money and becoming wealthy, and he did. He was very successful. But under his name in an old edition of Encyclopedia Britannica, John Livingstone is listed simply as the brother of David Livingstone. My brother would be mad if that happened. And you might be mad at your brother if that happened in your life. So who was David Livingstone? Well, while John was dedicated to making money, David knelt and he prayed and surrendered himself to Christ. He resolved, I will place no value on anything I have or possess unless it is in relationship to the kingdom of God. The inscription over his burial place in Westminster Abbey reads, for 30 years, his life was spent in an unwearied effort to evangelize, to evangelize for the king. On his 59th birthday, David Livingstone wrote, my Jesus, my king, my life, my all, I again dedicate my whole self to thee. Jesus is the risen ruler and the righteous judge of the world, and we follow him. Russell Moore wrote of a few years ago, standing at the grave of Thomas Jefferson, and he writes, I was prompted to give thanks for his life and his legacy. After all, if it weren't for Jefferson and his majestic declaration of independence, there might not even be a United States of America and certainly not a country quite like it is now. But standing at Jefferson's grave prompted me to realize that Jefferson is, well, in the grave. Jefferson's anti-supernaturalism is seen in visual form in his famous Bible, in which he cut out all of the miraculous parts, and most significantly, cut out the parts that talked about the bodily resurrection of Jesus. He writes, I love Jefferson for standing against King George, but not for standing against King Jesus. And yet, 200 years later, belief in the resurrection of Jesus persists. Just days after I was at this hero's grave, Christians from all over the world, despite science, despite progress, despite technology, confessed what the earliest believers confessed in the catacombs of Rome. Christ is risen indeed. Thomas Jefferson is still dead. I thank God for him, but standing at his grave reminds me how limited even his legacy can be in the grand scheme of trillions of years of cosmic time. It also reminds me of the contrast with the one whose monument isn't a house or even a simple grave marker, Instead, it's a borrowed tomb that isn't filled anymore. 
Because that empty tomb is in itself a declaration of independence. By raising Jesus from the dead, God declared him and all who are in him free from death, free from the curse, and free from Satan's accusation. I suppose you would say that Jesus was endowed by his father with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, except that these blessings don't end in a graveyard. They go on forever. Because Jesus has risen. Jesus is the risen and righteous judge of the world. And the question that remains for all of us is will we come under the reign of this risen king? You've been listening to A Better Word with Dr. Nick Gatsky. Thanks again for joining us. Now, I admit, I'm a little weird. Why? Well, one of my favorite books of scripture is one that you might skip over or just think, wow, why is this even here? I love the book of Ecclesiastes. When I first stumbled on this book, I was in a place where I was just kind of bummed out. I was frustrated by the way life was working out, the way the world was going. And lo and behold, I find some relief looking at the writer in Ecclesiastes proclaiming that there's so many things in life that seem unfair. I was like, wow, I can say this as a believer. This is amazing. And everyone still looks at me funny anyway, even though I like this. But I got to tell you, there's a lot of rich truth to pull out of the book of Ecclesiastes. And that's why we at A Better Word are offering a book today that helps you dig into that particular book in scripture. It's David Gibson's book, Living Life Backward, How Ecclesiastes Teaches Us to Live in Light of the End. Sound interesting to you? Well, just get your gift in today to A Better Word, and we'll send you a copy of David Gibson's book, Living Life Backward. Go now to abetterword.org. That's abetterword.org. A Better Word is a teaching ministry of and is sponsored by Old North Church of Canfield, Ohio.